I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is the word of the Lord. God and Father, as we come to your word, I pray that you would be teaching us to follow after you and conforming us to your image, be at work by your Holy Spirit in our hearts and lives. Be with all of us sinners as we sit under your word. Be with me, a sinner, as I preach it. I pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So here in the beginning of Romans 12, Paul is making this big shift in the letter. For the first 11 chapters of Romans, which we spent basically all of last year preaching through, if you're new with us here, um, Paul has been talking about this set of truths, this set of beliefs and ideas about Jesus and what he has done. And here in chapter 12, Paul starts to shift to saying, now, if that's true, here are some things we should do. Right? He's shifting from kind of the true, what's true, to what to do. Which isn't to say there was nothing to do in the first 11 chapters of Romans. I hope nobody came away from last year feeling that. But, um, but it is to say that there's a real focus now on our calling and our call to obey as Christians in the last couple chapters of Romans. And so as we start to embark on that, I want to just give you an idea that was pointed out to me originally about preaching in seminary, but that really kind of I think about a lot as I come to texts like this one about obedience, just in general and in my life. And so it was, the, it was a guy talking about preaching, but he said the problem with a lot of preaching about Christian obedience is that it focuses on telling people what to do. The problem is that it focuses on telling people what to do. Now, he did not mean, the professor who said that to me, that, um, that you don't need that at all, right? There is a place, you know, we do need to understand what God's commands are. But here's what he was saying. He was saying, I mean, so I, I read the Bible, right? And 99.9% of the time, when I come across some command in the Bible, it's not new information to me, right? I'm not reading the Bible and I'm like, I should, I should pray? I should forgive people? Right? I should be generous? What? You know, my mind is blown. That's not what happens, right? We all kind of know those commands already. I'm not failing to do them because I lack knowledge that I'm supposed to. Um, and so what he was saying was that with all that focus on what to do, we aren't actually helping people change. We're just pointing out to them over and over the ways that they aren't changing. And so instead, this professor said in preaching, and I've come to really believe just in life, of, instead of just talking about what to do, you do need that, but then you also need to talk with people about how to do it and why to do it, about how and why as well as what, which is to say, like, I think about prayer, right? And I, I should pray more. You know, I know that I should pray more. And, I, and it's good to know that, 
But what's really helpful to me isn't just being told over and over, you should pray more. What's being helpful is to learn people's thoughts on, you know, new ways to pray, right? In different ways how to pray or to reflect more deeply on why I should be praying and why it is good. And I think that that's true of almost all areas of Christian obedience. And I point that out because I found that idea to be very helpful, but also because I think it's sort of what Paul is doing in these first two um, verses of Romans chapter 12. He's giving us the what of Christian obedience in this simple but massive kind of image, and then he's also giving us the how and the why. To show that to you, we're going to just start walking through the text, and let's start with the what, all right? What is Paul's command? So if you read verse 1, he says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. So the command there is to offer, right? To present. You could also translate that word, our bodies, as sacrifices. When Paul talks about presenting our bodies, he's not meaning like our bodies as opposed to our souls, right? He's not using the word in that way. Instead, what he's saying is that in the Old Testament, people would bring like a lamb or a bull to be sacrificed, and they would present it and put it up on the altar and sacrifice it to God. And what he's saying is now, instead of like taking that bull and putting it up there, what you're doing is you're taking yourself and you're putting yourself up on the altar, right? The command is to sacrifice our whole self. And he uses three words then to describe that sacrifice. The first word is living, which is to say that we're not sacrifices in the sense that, you know, we're we're offered up and then it's done or we die or something, but that what we're offering up to God is something that's ongoing, that continues for our whole lives as we live as sacrifices. And it is holy. Holy means set apart in the Old Testament. And so what you would do with sacrifices in the Old Testament, they'd be described as holy because you would take certain animals, usually the best ones, and you would set them apart to God and to his purposes. And so Paul is saying in the same way, what we're called to be is sacrifices who are set apart. We see our lives as set apart for God and his purposes. And it's pleasing to God. This is what God is after. His goal in saving us and in making us is that we would ultimately live for this purpose. And then at the end of the verse, Paul says, this is your true and proper worship. Some versions say spiritual there, if you're following along in your own Bible, which is a fine word, but it doesn't mean spiritual like as opposed to physical, but the word technically means rational there in the Greek, right? And so it means it's like your reasonable service is how maybe you've heard this verse translated. And so what Paul is saying is that like given who God is and given um, his greatness and the fact that he made everything and deserves everything, this is what worship should reasonably look like is to offer your whole self to God. There's this tension. I don't know if you've ever felt this. When we hear that kind of imagery, there's this tension to the way that the Bible talks about our obedience. On the one hand, it warns us against making our obedience the foundation of our faith. We are saved by grace through trusting in Jesus, and Paul has been emphasizing that in Romans so far, right? He's been arguing against those people who want to treat their obedience as a way of gaining salvation. That's true, but that can also give us this wrong idea 
we can talk about that grace then in a way that makes it cheap. That says kind of like, neato, I'm just going to pray this prayer and then me and God are cool and I'm just going to keep doing whatever I want. And that is not what the Bible is teaching. It says that truly accepting that grace involves repentance, turning from sin, and a trust in God as our Lord. So right alongside proclaiming God's grace in Romans, Paul has been trying to explain why it is that we're supposed to obey. He says that we're called to obedience not to justify ourselves. He's very clear about that. But we're called to obedience because we've died to sin and because we don't want to live in bondage and because the Spirit is at work in us and because God is calling us to true joy and life in his family. And this is the culmination of that theme, that call to obedience. That We said this before, but Christianity is free, but it will cost you your life. That's the idea that Paul is trying to bring home with this picture. That That's the what, right? That as much as God has saved us by grace and we are rescued by him, we are called to live lives of obedience following after him that look like we take our whole selves and offer them up to God as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to him. Christianity is free, but will cost us everything. This should remind us of something, especially in our world, I think, that we can sometimes forget. It reminds us that obedience, when I use that word, we're talking about something a lot bigger than I think a lot of us envision. We have this idea in our word sometimes that that obedience is this narrow set of things. Like, Like, we read this as if Paul's saying, I urge you, therefore, to do some religious stuff sometimes, right? Or we read this as if it's saying, like, I urge you, therefore, to, to make sure you keep this kind of specific set of a couple of rules over here. And, and that's, not, that's not the image Paul's giving us, though, right? What he's calling us to is to take our whole lives and offer them up in a way that means that every part of them is being lived as an offering to God. Now, it doesn't mean there are, there are religious things we should do, and there are rules, right? I'm not, I'm not saying that's not true, but those are the details of what is meant to be an all-of-my-life kind of obedience. That what God is calling me to, I mean, like when Jesus sums up the law, right? You know how he sums it up. It's love the Lord your God with everything, and love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. Or, um, or when... When Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit, right, in Galatians, he says these are the kind of fruit that the Holy Spirit works that you see in believers' lives. It's like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and self-control. It's, it's these things that describe this whole way of living in the world, not just this specific set of rules that I'm supposed to follow. And that's what we're being called to, to have our whole way of living transformed in a way that is honoring to God and reflects his holiness and truth. That's the what to do. It is important for us to hear that, right? It's not that the what to do is unimportant, because I think we can have the wrong answer sometimes. We can have too narrow a view. But like we said, we can say all of that and still be left wondering, okay, how do I do that? Why? And I think Paul gives us the answer, or at least part of the answer, to both of those questions, too. First, how? How do we learn to live our whole lives as living sacrifices? Well, look at verse 2. Paul says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, 
his good, pleasing, and perfect will. There's two sides of that. On the one side, Paul says, do not conform to the pattern of this world. Don't let your thinking be shaped in the shape of this world. See, for Paul, there's a sense in which sin always starts with how we think. Back in Romans 1, here's how Paul describes what happens as people slip into sin. He says, first, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator. So, so it starts with this changing of this truth, right? This truth about God and his greatness for believing some lie. Believing the lie that something in creation tells that it's going to make you ultimately happy and fulfilled. You believe that, and then a couple verses later, furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind, so that they do... Um, so that they do what ought not to be done. So as you start to think that way, as you start to believe those lies, our thinking actually starts to get warped. We start to not think about the world clearly. Now just to be clear, when I, when I talk about thinking there and mind, I don't just mean like your conscious, rational thinking, right? I don't just mean like when you sit in an armchair and ponder the deep things of the universe or something. Paul's talking about something kind of deeper. He's, he's talking about... What, what a lot of people today would call a worldview, right? A worldview, which is a way of thinking about the world that's shaped by beliefs that we don't even notice. Let me try to give you an example of a worldview that's not what Paul's talking about first, and then we'll talk about that. So, like, here's, here's a specific example of, how, of what a worldview is. I grew up in the rural Midwest, right, in, you know, I mean, from a family that had lots of farmers and stuff, and so I have this deep-seated belief that you should fix everything yourself, right? That, that you should fix your car yourself, and you should fix your house yourself, and you should be able to fix everything yourself. And not everybody thinks that way, right? <laughs> I mean, maybe some of you guys don't. And certainly, like, if, when I talk to friends who are from big cities, for example, they think that's crazy, they would say, like, there's this person who's really good at this and specialized in this, and why don't you just pay them to do it? And sometimes they're right. Like, like last month, while fixing myself the furnace in our house, right, I ended up breaking it way worse. <laughs> we had to spend way more money than it would have cost just to have somebody come out and fix it. But, but here's my thing. Where did that idea come from? Why is it that I just deeply believe that, and that person from another place deeply believes something else? It isn't because I've, like, sat down and thought it through. It's because... As I grew up, I heard people talk in a certain way, right? And I, I, I heard stories, and, you know, and I heard my, you know, my relatives talk about those no-good city folk who don't ever get their hands dirty and don't know how anything works. And that all taught me to view the world a certain way. That's what we mean when we talk about a worldview, except the world does that with a lot bigger things than just fixing furnaces. This world has ways of thinking about success and money, and love, and sex, and happiness, and all sorts of things that do not fit with God's way of thinking. And it's not that I sit down and rationally consider it, it's that I soak up those ways of thinking, too. Through advertisements, and TV shows, and conversations at the grocery store, and stories that I hear family members tell, and songs on the radio, I'm being trained to think about the world in a certain way. And often that way of thinking is hostile to God's truth. And so what Paul is saying is that we need to fight not to have our thinking be conformed to the thinking of this world, 
right? Don't conform the way we think about the world. Don't let it be shaped by that. We need to be engaged as Christians to challenge those ways of thinking. Or to put that another way, what we need to do first is recognize that we are in hostile territory as Christians, right? That this world is not our home, as we're fond of saying in kind of songs and stuff. But not just in the sense of, like, we're going to die and go to heaven. But more in the sense of, like, um, like I like TV shows about spies, do you? Or, like, about undercover, like, police officers or whatever. And if you've ever watched those kinds of shows, you know one of the dangers is the person going native. Have you ever heard that phrase? It means if you're, like, a spy in a foreign country or you're, like, an undercover officer with some, like, group of drug dealers or, you know, or gun runners or something... If you're there long enough, you have this danger where you can start to get confused about why you're there, right? And about who's right and who's wrong. You can start to feel like those people are actually right and start to think like they do. And the danger for us as Christians is that it's very easy for us to go native in the world. For us to start to think in those same ways and uncritically absorb its worldview. So that's the first half of Paul's command. Don't be conformed to the pattern of this world. But he gives another side of it to it, too. Going on in verse 2, he says, But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, we don't, that means we don't just need to be critical about the world, but we also need to have our minds be renewed and be transformed by that. Um, there's something really important about that word, and that's that it is in the passive voice. I know I hear everyone go, oh, yeah, I know. If you think way back for many of us to, like, high school English class, there are, you can have words in the active voice and the passive voice. And the active voice means you're doing it, and the passive voice means it's being done to you. Does that make sense? So, like, I don't cut my hair, I get a haircut. That's the difference. And here, what Paul is saying when he talks about, um, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that is in the passive voice. In verse 1, when he says, present yourself as a living sacrifice, that's active. He says, you do that, right? Um, When he talks about don't be conformed, technically that's middle in the Greek, which is not a thing that exists in English. But basically, it's sort of like active. But when he talks about be transformed by the renewing of your mind, he's describing something that happens to us, not something that we just force ourselves to do. And here's what he's talking about. He's saying, look, there are things that we're called to do then as Christians. We're called to learn God's ways and learn about Jesus and spend time, you know, worshiping God. And and all of that is meant to shape us. But it's not that we do those things and then draw some simple line and then obey. It's that as we live as Christians and as we worship and learn more about God and pray and spend time with him and with his people, that actually grows us shapes us in ways to start to change our thinking and ultimately then to change our action that's why at the end of the verse he says then you will be able to test and approve what god's will is his good pleasing and perfect will so he's saying that as you live in those things as you have those things shape your worldview rather than just letting the world shape it what that means is that you start to think about the world in a way that just draws you to obey. You start to look at God's will, and you see it as good, right? You desire it. You see it as pleasing, and you see it as perfect. That's what actually happens to us, then, as we let God shape and renew our minds. What does that mean practically for us? 
when we talk about how to live as sacrifices. Well, if I had to sum all of that up, let me offer two thoughts about what that means about how we live in the world. First is that it means that we should engage everything in this world critically. We should engage everything in this world critically. Oftentimes, we kind of live in the world and it's like, like we see like an ad on TV and we think just like, it's like the, the caveman, like, me want, you know, me, me, me get, you know. I mean, that, that simple a kind of equivalence. But what we need to do instead is develop this habit of testing things as we encounter them in the world. Of asking, is this what God wants? Is this the result of his truth? Or am I buying a lie? One way to do that is that as we live in this world where we're constantly bombarded by radio and television and internet advertising and stuff, is to just constantly be asking, what are they trying to sell me? What are they trying to sell me? Now, sometimes, it's, I mean that in a very kind of literal way, <laughs> like just this last week I was listening, I tried to just listen to like random things from all over the spectrum that different people would be exposed to, and so I was listening online to this guy, um, who had some, some very conspiratorial notions about the world. And for an hour, I sat and listened to him talking about how, like, everything was falling to pieces and the United States was going to collapse in, like, next year, you know, <laughs> like, and everything was going to be awful and, um, you know, and civilization was ending, basically. And, I mean, initially I'm kind of like, yeah, right. But you, you sit and you listen to that for an hour and you start to feel worried, right? Like, somewhere in your gut you're like, well, what if this is true? What, you know, I'm kind of feeling nervous about the future of civilization. Until suddenly there's this moment where he's, he's in the middle of this like spiel about everything collapsing. He's like, and I got to take a break here to tell you about this great product I'm selling, these survival kits to help you survive when civilization collapses, right? And then suddenly like the light goes on. You're like, okay, like you're selling me this fear, right? Because you're trying to sell me meals ready to eat and generators to put in my basement and stuff like that, right? Sometimes it's like that. Sometimes it's not that obvious, but still, it's trying to sell you a certain picture of the world. I mean, just think about, like, the television shows you watch. Have you ever stopped and thought, like, what do the houses look like that these people live in, right? Think about where they are in the country. Think, you know, think about how much, what their jobs supposedly are. Like, what, do that, what does their house look like? Is it small? Is it messy? Right? How big is the television that they have on the wall? Like, all of those things are trying to sell us a certain picture of the world, of the good life, and what it looks like, and what we deserve, and what we should be able to have. And it's important for us as Christians to engage with those things critically. So that's half of it. That's one of the two practical suggestions. And then the other one is that we should always be seeking to grow in thinking biblically. We should always seek to be growing in thinking biblically. And I don't mean by that just we should be trying to, like, think a bunch about the Bible or about Christianity. Although that's there, I mean that we should be seeking to soak in God's truth in a way that helps us to live in the world, in a way that honors him. I mean, like, we, that's, we don't just read the Bible, right, to learn facts. 
You realize that? I think sometimes, without thinking about it, we, we have this notion that, like, I'm supposed to read and study and know stuff about Christianity because, like, someday when I die, St. Peter's going to be like, all right, before you get in, I need you to name the 12 disciples in the 12 tribes of Israel, right? And, you know, and that's not why we're doing that. We're meant to know Scripture, to read it and soak in it, because it actually shapes the way that we think about and live in the world. That's also why we're called to do things that flow out of, um, of reading the Bible, that are, that, are, that are shaping our thinking. Like, it's why we as believers should be trying to have meaningful conversations about God's truth with other Christians. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but I mean, just we should be talking with each other about what's true and how to live for God in the world. It's the reason that it's worth, like, I mean, listening to things about Christianity or even reading things. I know this is not going to be everyone's, you know, piece of cake, but, like, we've got a book table out in the foyer, right? Try reading a book to help you grow in your faith or, or something like that. And in all of those things, I'm not saying if you do them that, like, all of your struggles to obey are going to be fixed, right? I'm not saying, like, oh, yeah, just study the Bible and talk with some Christians about it and read a book, and then you're going to be perfect, right? I'm not selling you that. What I am telling you is that the more you do that, the more you do that over the course of your life, the more you will be grown to be conformed to God rather than the world. I think about those older saints that I look up to, right, who are deep and wise. They didn't just wake up that way one day. Have you ever thought about that? Like the kind of depth and wisdom that I admire in them now is the fruit of years and decades of, you know, I mean, of sitting down to pray, opening their Bible and seeking to read it, of trying to grow a little bit at a time in Christ so that decades later you see that kind of depth that they have now. So maybe, maybe this year, right, as we're still at the beginning of it and you're looking forward to it, think about what does it mean for me to soak in God's truth? Maybe if you've never read the Bible, just, I mean, try, try spending some time reading the Bible. I don't mean like, I mean like 10 minutes in the morning with a cup of coffee, right? I don't mean like hours and hours or something. But, and if you're doing that, maybe take, you know, the next step or the next step. But all of us, let's be seeking to do that because that's actually how we then start to be taught to be living sacrifices. So that's the what and the how present ourselves as living sacrifices and to do it by having our thinking transformed so that we're not conformed to this world, but rather our minds are renewed. But there's one last layer, like we said, and I think it's in some ways the most important, and that's why. Why should we do all of this? So to get there, I have a question for you, which is, if you had to like make a list, what would, what would be on your list of the most important words in the Bible? Okay? Like, if you had to kind of make your list of the most important words. I mean, obviously, like, yes, God and Jesus, good. Like, you've gone to Sunday school or something, you know that you should say that, right? And maybe, maybe some big ideas like love or holiness would belong there. Or maybe, if you want to get clever, you could maybe use some theological words like covenant or something. And all of that's great. But let me suggest to you that really high on that list, one of the words that you should keep an eye out for is one of the most important words in the Bible is um, it's really easy to miss. In Greek it's just three letters, although it's not in English, and if you're reading the NIV it's the first word in our passage this morning. Other translations put it near the beginning. 
But look at it and see if you see it. It is, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy. One of the most important words in the Bible is therefore, which is to say, where is this command coming from? With that word, Paul is saying this comes from what's come before it. In fact, that's what he sums up as in view of God's mercy then, the beginning of Romans 12.1. Now, Paul, so Paul is, has been talking about this, this life-altering work that God has done in Jesus, and now he's saying, here's what to do, but by saying, therefore, he's reminding us that this command he's giving us is because of what has come before, because of everything that's come up to this point. We should offer ourselves as sacrifices and be transformed. So let's just take a minute and remind ourselves of what that because is. Right? If you look back to Romans first, because we're all sinners. That's where Paul starts in Romans. All of us are sinful. None of us is righteous, and we can't obey our way out of it, and we can't think our way out of it, and we can't religion our way out of it. You and I and all of us are under sin. That's Romans 1 through the first part of 3. And then, because we are saved by faith, because God saved us anyway, and saved us not through our righteousness or hard work, but simply by offering Jesus as a sacrifice and calling us to trust in him. By trusting in him, we are saved. That's the end of Romans 3 and 4. And then it's because we are reconciled with God, that, we're, that God has made peace between us and himself. That we have this new relationship with him. Um, we actually know him and we're his children. And that's the first part of Romans 5. And then because we are new human beings, through the resurrection, God's actually worked in Jesus to start this new humanity. So I'm not Adam's child anymore. I am this new, part of this new humanity in Jesus. And so I have this new identity and new life. And that's the end of Romans 5. And then because we have new life, he spells that out in Romans 6, we have this life of the Spirit actually bubbling up in us. And because we have been set free from sin, I mean, we aren't actually happy in serving sin. It's, we're slaves to it, and we've been set free. And that's Romans 6. And then because we're free from the law, too. We're free from having to keep up appearances and trying to justify ourselves. And that's Romans 7. And then Romans 8, because it covers a lot of ground. Because we have the Holy Spirit. And because we are God's children. And because all of creation is being redeemed by God. And because God will never let us go, no matter what comes and no matter what happens. Because of all these things that Jesus has done. And then because God chose and called us in Romans 9. Because God chases after us and saves us. And 10 through 11, because God is working salvation for all. For all kinds of people all over the world. For Jews and Gentiles and the religious and the irreligious and the good and the bad. God's working to save them all. Because of all that, Paul says, in view of God's mercy, therefore, present your bodies as living sacrifices. Therefore, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Here's why that matters. There are two ways, it seems to me as a parent, that you can teach your children to obey. One of them is to teach them to obey in order to earn your love. The other is to teach them obey, to obey because they are loved. Right? Teach them to obey in order to earn love or because they are loved. 
And you know what? Like, looking from the outside, it can be really hard to tell the difference between those two approaches to parenting. But the first way is going to destroy your kids in the end, and the second way is going to lead them to flourish. There are two ways that you can seek to obey God. One is to obey him in order to earn his love, and the other is to obey him in order, or because you are loved. And those can look similar too, right? Both are calling us to obedience and seeking his will. But one of those ways is going to destroy you, and the other one is going to lead you to flourishing. We are loved by God. That is Paul's point. That's why he spends all this time in Romans saying what he has. And not just loved in some abstract way, like God kind of feels nice about us down in his heart. God has died for us. God has given us his spirit. He's made us a part of his family. He's given us life and acceptance. He's loved you. And you have to feel that and believe that. And then... Hear the command that follows. This is true, therefore here is what to do. The more we understand that truth, that all of this rests on the foundation of God's love for us, the more we find the power and the passion to obey. Let me put it another way. We are called to be living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. That language actually, I think, we, we hear that and this verse is kind of familiar. So most of us are like, oh yeah, that's really a weird image, right? When Paul first used it, like, oh yeah, you know those cattle that you like slaughter and drain the blood and then burn? Like, that's what you should be for God, right? Why, why is Paul using that as his image? I think at least part of the answer is that he's using it to remind us of Jesus. So Paul has spent the first part of Romans telling us that Jesus was sacrificed for us. Here's how he puts it back in chapter 3. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. God presented Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement, a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to him. Therefore, offer yourselves as such sacrifices, living and holy and pleasing to God. What we are being called to do is modeled on what Jesus has already done for us. And it's there, as we return to that over and over, that we find the reason and the power obey. This is why we shouldn't be conformed to the world. This is why we should be transformed. This is why we should offer ourselves as living sacrifices. Because Jesus first offered himself for us. So let's never tire of returning to that beautiful truth and the love that it shows and then taking up our crosses and following where our Savior has first tried. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for the love that you have for us in Jesus Christ, sacrificed for us. And I pray that you would teach us to live our lives as sacrifices for you, offering ourselves up in love and service to the world and obedience to your will, even as Jesus Christ offered himself up in love and service for us and obedience to your will to save us. 
pray all these things in his sweet name. Amen.